All right, good morning. Welcome if you're new with us. Um, we're going to be in, uh, continue on in our journey this morning in the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there to chapter 21, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 this morning. I titled this morning's message, Behold, I Make All Things New. And we're in this portion of Revelation right now where things have kind of cleared out a little bit, if you want to say. It's been quite the journey, uh, quite a few uh, studies throughout this book, but we've gone through these three sets of seven tribulation plagues that we might call them, these this outpouring of wrath upon a world that has rejected Christ. We talked last week about this millennial kingdom that is to come. And this morning we enter into chapter 21 with a new heaven and a new earth. This, you might say, is the day that we're waiting for as a church. If we were to sum it all up, we're looking forward to that day when we're going to be face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of the things that are in this life, all the trials, temptations, and hardships, and things that have come along in this world, that this fallen world that we live in, is going to come to an end. Behold, I make all things new. We read in our Bibles, if you'll uh, look there and read with me in verse 1, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Just pause for a second. Just think of what Jesus just said. Behold, I make all things new. Some of us don't like change. Some of us don't like this big of a change. But for us as Christians, it's our hope. It's that day we're waiting for. When God is going to take everything and make it new. And just reading verses 3 and 4. 
That's something that many of us need to be reading even quite often as we experience the hardships and the tears and the pains of life. He goes on to say in verse 6, And he said to me, it is done. Exclamation mark. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Are you thirsty? He who comes, and he, excuse me, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Pause again. Just think of those words in verse 8. Think of the, the many souls that we love. Think of those that don't know Christ, that you mingle with every single day. Think of those family members that don't know Christ. God, would you give us opportunity to reach our family, to reach our neighbor, to reach our coworker, to reach that person at school, whatever it might be. Would you give us opportunity to open our mouth that we might redeem the days that we're living in as a church? Make good use of the time that we have. The night that Jesus was arrested, he sat with his disciples in that upper room for the Last Supper, and he gave them a number of promises. One of those promises that he gave is in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Jesus said to his disciples that night, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. A promise. A promise that God will fulfill. It's our hope. It was that encouragement to the disciples and would later be even a greater encouragement after they saw him hanging on a cross, crucified, them running in fear, and then realizing that he had risen from the dead just as he said that he would. Such hope, such confidence that we have as Christians. That Jesus, our King, 
Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our prophet. And Jesus, our high priest. He went away to prepare a place for you and I in eternity. Isn't that amazing? And I'm going to come again. And I'm going to receive you unto myself where I am. There you may be also. Such great hope. You see, after Jesus ascended back into heaven, we're told in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 14. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Or let us take hold of our profession. The faith and the hope of our profession as Christians lay hold. Where is Jesus our high priest now? Hebrews 8.1 tells us. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's where he is. In the heavens, at his throne, making intercession for you and I. Aren't you thankful? You see, the Bible speaks of three different heavens. And the first heaven... We know it's our atmosphere. We know that in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's what we see with our eyes when we walk outside. But then there's that second heaven that we've also in technology been able to see into outer space. We've been able to see the planets and the stars and more clarity. That second heaven, we might call it. But then there's the third heaven. It's where God dwells. And we read about this experience in, of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to what his testimony was about this third heaven. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. So Paul didn't even know whether he was in the flesh there or what was happening, but all he knew, and God knows, that there was such a man that was caught up to the third heaven. There it is. I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise, he says, and I heard inexpressible words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. Wow, what do we have in store for us? He had just a glimpse. And just think, and just the thought of what it's going to be like when we're ushered into paradise into that third heaven 
That word caught up into the third heaven is harpazo, the same when we talk about the rapture of the church. We're going to be snatched away and taken to be with the Lord. He was caught up in verse 4 into paradise, heard these inexpressible words that are not even lawful for a man to utter. In other words, you're going to have to wait until you get there, guys. The origin of the word paradise. It actually speaks of parks and gardens. Do you like parks and gardens? We know it as heaven. When we think of going to heaven. And it's called paradise. It's called heaven. But we know that in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we see that man... He started in paradise, didn't he? He started in paradise, or we might say he started in the parks and gardens that God had created. The garden was perfect in God's creation. We might say that it was like heaven on earth. Adam, Eve. Created by God in this perfect environment. God and Adam were able to be face to face in fellowship with each other. Someday that's going to be the case for us. Face to face. We read in Genesis 2.8. The Lord God, he planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, to Eve, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. You ever heard that saying there, this is where everything went wrong? Has that ever happened in your life? This is where it all went wrong. It's where they were tempted. When you and I get tempted in life, they were tempted and they were drawn away by the seductive Deceitfulness of the devil. And after the fall, we know that fellowship with God was destroyed. Man no longer could go face to face with God. The curse was put upon man. The curse was put upon this earth. And it brought forth sin. It brought forth death. It brought forth corruption in this world upon all of God's creation. This perfect garden, this paradise that he had created. There was nothing that was not affected by sin. It corrupted it all. In the New Testament, Every gospel comes to the cross, doesn't it? It all leads to the cross. 
And it's at the cross where we see the victory. Victory over sin. Victory over death and corruption. All won at the cross. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. His love for you and I. He went to the cross. But as Jesus hung on the cross that day. It says that there was a man that was hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And Jesus said these words to him. He said, assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine how those words sounded in the ears of the man that was being crucified next to Jesus? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Paul writing in the book of Romans in chapter 8, verse 19. He wrote concerning the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of all of his creation. In verse 19 we read, For the earnest expectation of the creation, God's creation, it eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains. Together until now. This whole earth is in birth pains. Because of the corruption upon it. And not only that. But we also have the. That have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves. Eagerly waiting for the adoption. The redemption of our body. Are you all excited about having a new body someday? Does that excite you? I mean, it does for me when I lean down to pick something up and I feel my back and the soreness in it. And everything else that you might deal with and contend with, you're going to have a new body. We're all groaning, aren't we? In different ways. But it's all going to come to an end. New bodies. The redemption of your body. In Revelation 2.7. We read the seven letters to the seven churches. And John wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. He says to him who overcomes. I will give to eat from the tree of life. Which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree of life. I thought that was back in the garden. It was. And it's going to be in paradise when we're in heaven also. He'll give to eat from the tree of life. Which is in the midst. The paradise of God. The tree in the first book of the Bible. Genesis and God's creation. And the tree in paradise. You see, God's going to bring it full circle. What was corrupted 
and, and the curse that was put, he's going to bring it full circle. Remember what God said in Genesis 3.3? 3? He says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And we know the story. We know what they went on to do. They partook of it. And I would have to say if it wasn't them, it would have been us. We can see from Genesis to Revelation that what God created perfect, it became corrupted by sinful man. The earth went from paradise to corruption. But now in Revelation, we see God bringing all things full circle from corruption to paradise. All the covenants, and we've talked about that a couple weeks ago. All the covenants, all the promises that God made with Israel, they've all been fulfilled by this point in the book of Revelation. The first resurrection is now complete by this time. The millennial reign of Christ is finished. The unsaved have now been resurrected and judged. And all of the saints of all of the ages are in the place that Jesus went away to prepare. Looking ahead to chapter 22, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, John sees paradise restored. He writes this, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Here it is. Was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves are the tree, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. No more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb of God shall be in it. Can you imagine the day when there's no more curse? No more temptations with sin. No more contending with your adversary, the devil. No more living in a corrupted, fallen world. No more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. That's you and I. There shall be no night there, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign for how long? Forever and ever. Are you ready, church? Are you ready for that day when the Lord is going to take us home to be with Him? And I want you to think on this point it's forever and ever. If you don't like the fact that you're going to spend eternity with me forever and ever, you'll have to get over it. It's going to be forever and ever.
about her. I started thinking that some of the church today, I think, is so earthly minded that heaven is either such a scary thing or a thought to them, or that the things of this earth, the stuff they have and the things of this earth are so appealing to them that they would actually say, I'm not ready for heaven. I'm not done with this life. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready. There's no stuff that I have that is better than what we're going to have in eternity. I'm ready to go home. And I hope you are too. Be ready. But listen to the testimony of the Old Testament saints. This is the way they thought. Hebrews 11.13. We're told that these Old Testament saints that were looking ahead to the coming Messiah. They all died in faith. Not having received the promise. They didn't even yet receive the promises. But having seen them afar off. We're told that they were assured of them. They embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you see yourself that way? As a stranger in this world? As a pilgrim that's just passing through this life? Is that how you see yourself as a Christian? Or are you so locked into this life that it's going to be hard to move you out? God will do it anyway. But don't get attached To the things of this world. It says of these Old Testament saints. They declared plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out. They would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better. And so do I. That is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared A city for them, for you and I. A city prepared. A place in heaven that we're going to have prepared for us. Let me ask a question. Is this your mindset? Is this how you think? Are you that stranger? Are you that pilgrim as a Christian? Just passing through. Do you and are you patiently waiting with endurance, running your race, patiently looking for the Lord's return? I think it's the place we should be. Are you looking ahead to that day that you're going to stand face to face with the living God? I think we should. Look at your Bibles at verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. The word now that we read in verse 1 could be looking back to chapter 20 verse 11. Where we read that when John saw the great white throne and he who sat on it, 
which I believe is Jesus Christ. And it says that the earth and heaven fled away from his face. Now, some believe that the new heaven and the new earth is going to happen in conjunction with this great white throne judgment that we talked about last week. There's going to be the new heaven and the new earth, but also the great white throne judgment kind of happening around the same time, and that's possible. Just in the wording that earth and heaven fled away from his face. I believe God is not going to just renovate this earth. I don't believe he's going to renovate it as we think of renovations of the heaven and earth. I believe that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This new earth, John says, though, has no more sea. Does that bum some of you out? I like the sea. There's going to be no more ocean, no more sea. But what's interesting about these words, no more sea in scripture, is that the sea is often spoken of in a negative way. Remember that God judged the people of the earth with the waters of the deep when he flooded the whole earth flood. It was the sea that covered Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. In Isaiah 57 20 we're told the wicked are compared to the sea. It says that the wicked are like the tossing of the sea. In Revelation 13 1 We read this in the past that John saw the beast rising up out of the sea. There's going to be no more sea. Some believe that God is going to renovate the old and others believe in a whole new remake. But What I read and what I see in scripture, and this is where I lean, is it's going to be a remake. Listen to Psalm 102, verse 25. Of of old you, speaking of God, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you, God, will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You, God, will change them and they will be changed. The prophet Isaiah wrote in in Isaiah 51, 6. He says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. Peter also wrote of this day. This coming day. In 2 Peter 3.7. He says, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire. It's how God's going to do it this time. Reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition 
of ungodly men. And then we read in the same chapter in verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now that great noise, if you look it up and define it, it's, it's like a rushing noise. It's like that of a whizzing arrow through the air. Or the crash of a devouring flame. And so it's going to pass away with a great noise. And we're told that the elements, which I believe are the sun, moon, and stars, will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it, we're told, will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will soon, and I'll put soon, be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What I say to that is I can't wait till that day, new heaven and a new earth. In these first two verses of this chapter, John sees really two visions here that are back to back. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verse two, then I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The first question about the new heaven and the new earth is the timing. And I've already given you a, a, a little timeline in the past. It's important for us to maybe have this timeline in our mind as we read through Revelation. But death and sin will still be present all the way to the end of the millennium. It's why I believe that this new heaven and new earth is going to follow the millennial reign of Christ. Because we're going to see that there's still going to be, when Satan is released, there's still going to be people that are going to perish. Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. This thousand years that Satan is, is bound I believe that this new heaven and new earth is going to follow after that. Look at verse 2 now. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I want you to notice this is a new Jerusalem. It's not the old one during... The tribulation that we've read about is the renewed one. It's, it's not even the renewed one, excuse me, during the thousand year reign of Christ. This is going to be the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This new Jerusalem is a holy city. Unlike the whole unholy city that we read about in the book of, of uh, Revelation, back in chapter 11, remember that the city of Jerusalem was likened unto Sodom and Egypt 
in that chapter. Because the city itself has been corrupted by man. This is going to be the new Jerusalem coming down. The holy city of God. God bringing it full circle and bringing it down to this to man. This city is going to be a whole new city. The reason for the new Jerusalem is because the old needs to be replaced. You see, that's what God's doing here. I'm going to make all things new. He's going to replace the old with something new. If you're a child of God here this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in essence, that's what he's done in you, hasn't he? Remember who you were before Christ? And remember who you are now. Remember that when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. He says you are a new creation in Christ. The former things have passed away. Behold all things have become new. You have a different purpose in life don't you? A different reason where you're going. That's the new creation that we are in Christ. This new will be unlike the old. There's not going to be any corruption. New means new in quality. It's better. It's superior. It's different from the old. And that's what we're going to experience when we enter in on that day. There's going to be no more aliens that are going to pass through this city. No more enemies of God. No more enemies of Israel. It's going to be this new Jerusalem. It's going to be the ultimate, we might call it, destination for God's saints. It's where we will be. To the church at Philadelphia, back in the seven letters, Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. It's a promise to the church. John also sees this new Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. We saw Abby, those of you that know Abby and Latrell here in the church, we saw her walk this aisle yesterday. Beautiful bride walking down. It's going to be that new Jerusalem coming down like that bride walking the aisle, coming down from heaven in all of its beauty and splendor. In a couple of weeks... Because next week we're going to have a different message from Pastor Kyle. But in a couple of weeks we're going to be looking at more detail at this new Jerusalem. It's going to be an incredible place. We're going to get more details of what that's going to look like. But look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying. This is probably from an angel. Behold the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them. And be their God. Remember that the old tabernacle. Was the meeting place between sinful man. And a holy God. 
That was the old tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle in the wilderness? Became the Solomon's temple. Remember that this was the place in which sinful man could meet a holy God in his presence there in the temple. This is what God desires of you and I. That we would be able to come once again face to face with him. No hindrance. That he desires to have fellowship face to face with you and I. We read in Psalm 1611 that in your presence, God, is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Revelation 21:22, John writes, but I saw no temple in it. The temple's gone now. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And just think of what that's going to be like. Being able to just approach God. We don't even have to do it by prayer anymore. We, don't have, we, we can approach God. We're going to be in his presence. We're going to be in our glorified bodies. In this new place that he has prepared for you and I. If I could tell you with certainty. That you are going to be standing face to face with God tomorrow morning. How would you live the rest of this day? What would you do today? In the hours that you have left. How would you live? What would be different? In 1 John 3, 2, John wrote, Beloved Christians, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. There's a purifying effect for you and I as Christians. When you are living in anticipation of that return of Jesus Christ. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself. We go on in verse 4. These are the wonderful verses, church. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. And we've seen a number of that in our church lately here. Nor sorrow. Nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. I don't think that we're going to spend eternity as Christians thinking about all the past sufferings of this life. I don't think we're going to be bogged down with that. Of all the crying and all the, the hardships of this life of the past. I think it's just going to be, it's going to be gone. We're going to be in eternity. You might say, I like crying. Some of us do. It's healing. We like to cry. But maybe the crying that we'll have in heaven will just be tears of joy. It's not going to be tears of suffering. 
tears of loss. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. Paul said in Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time, they're not even worthy to be compared to what we have ahead of us. It's far better than you and I can wrap our heads around. We're just getting a glimpse. John hears another voice then from God in verse 5. Then God who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Remember in Revelation 19.11, we read, Now as I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. You see, you can rely upon everything that we've read, everything that we've gone through, through the whole Bible, but through the book of Rel, you can rely upon the one who was faithful and true to his promises. Look what God says to John in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I like that. It is done. I think some of you wives love it when your husbands say, it's done. Oh yeah, I got it fixed. I, I fixed it. It's done. But we don't always get it all done. But when God says, it is done. It is finished. It's done. I like those words. And then he says, and I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Freely is a key word. And to those who would thirst. Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Have you ever received an inheritance, a portion of one? You didn't get it all, maybe, but you got a portion of it. In this day, you're going to get it all. You're going to receive all the inheritance that was due to you and to me. All means all. You can count on it. God says, he who overcomes will inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Who's the people that overcome? Are, the people, are they the people, the Christians that make it to the end? Through all the struggles of life and if you make it, you overcome. And if you don't make it, you didn't overcome. No. The person that overcomes is who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Christ. Do you believe that? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Then you're an overcomer by the sheer fact of what Christ has done for you. Not by your efforts of you overcoming to the end. But look at verse 8. 
we end on a note that is hard, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, and sexual immoral, sorcerers and idolaters, and I think it's interesting in that list of ugly sins and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Remember we shared about the resurrections. There's the first resurrection, there's the second resurrection. Blessed is he who takes part in the first resurrection because the second death is for the unbeliever. Why did Jesus come into this world? To save the cowardly. To save the unbelieving. The abominable. The murderers. The sexually immoral. The sorcerers and idolaters. And all liars. He came to save us, didn't he? We're in that list. Somewhere in that list. But this is what we read, and I'll close with this verse. Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. That's why he came. It was his mission. He came to save you. He came to save me. For my sin. He's faithful. He will do what he said he's going to do. He came into this world to save sinners. He didn't come to save the righteous. But sinners. He didn't come to save those who think they're well. He came to save those who know that they're sick. And that they need a physician. And he did that because of his great love for you and I. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this broken down world, Lord. This world that had no hope. And sending him to that cross, Lord, to bear the penalty for my sin, for the sins of the world. And Lord, as we consider, Lord, our unworthiness of receiving this gift of salvation, Lord, would you cause our hearts even now to well up with just a thankfulness that you saved us that we know you, that you drew us out of this world and this dark world into your marvelous light, that you prepared a place for us. And Lord, we are so looking forward to that day when we're going to be in your presence. Even so, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.